Good morning. I'm going to get started. I suppose, as you all predicted, uh, the numbers would start to drop once people got into the third or fourth week of having to get up early. So, um, all right, let me uh, pray. We're going to get into the book of Job. And uh, um, really start the wisdom literature, so I'll pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning, for the chance that we have to look at your word together, to consider your servant Job, the, the work that you did in his life, to think about um, really the, the spirit superintendence of this book and what it's here for and how it's an encouragement to us. We pray that as we study, you would... Um, illumine our minds, that we would understand your word, we'd rejoice in it, we'd be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, I want to bring us back for a second to the promises and what they tie to. If you guys remember, what are the three promises that God gave to Abraham? Everybody remember? I know it's early. You better remember because I ask you all the time. What? Good. So, uh, land, seed, and then blessing to the nations, basically, right? He'd be a blessing to the nations, okay? Um, now, when we, when we understand that, we're, we're talking about what, what does that look like? It, it, it ends up looking like seed um, is we're looking for this king who will come. We start to learn that, narrow that down from Moses through David, etc., they were watching for this king, the seed of the woman. And, and as far as land and the blessing that attends to it, we're really looking for his kingdom. So we're watching for this king and his kingdom to come. Now we have in Israel, under the kings, a typical kingdom. You guys know what I mean by that when I say a typical kingdom? We have in Israel, under the kings, a typical kingdom. Okay, good. A typical kingdom points forward to, to the actual kingdom, okay? So to an anti-typical kingdom. When I say anti-typical, we're talking about the fulfillment, um, what, what we've been looking forward to. So the typical kingdom, Israel, with a king, is, is a type, a picture, a pointing forward to the real kingdom that we're looking forward to, if you will, the true kingdom of God, um, when I say real, I don't mean the t that Israelite kingdom was fake. I just mean in the sense of prophetic fulfillment, what we're looking forward to is the kingdom of God, right? That's being brought by the king, the messianic king. So the messianic king, I want to emphasize this. The messianic king comes in the New Testament and the kingdom of God begins. It's inaugurated. That's why I put that language there. It's inaugurated, but it's not consummated. Okay, so when Christ comes, he inaugurates the kingdom of God as the king that we've been waiting for, but he hasn't consummated the kingdom, right? We're waiting for that. When he consummates, it's the return, right? All things are made new fully and finally. So um, I, I bring that up to remind you as we're going through here, while the Psalter really begins the writings, which we looked at the Psalter uh, for three weeks, I suppose, while the Psalter begins the section we call the writings, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, Daniel, 
First and Second Chronicles. Um, you know, um, I, there's others I could list. But while, the, while the Psalter uh, begins that section of writing, writings, Job begins the prophets. Or, excuse me, the wisdom literature. Job begins the wisdom literature. So he begins that wisdom literature, and he's the beginning of the four books of wisdom literature. The four books of wisdom literature, Job, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at all four of those. Um, Job first. I'm guessing we'll, we'll spend at least two weeks on Job. Now that I've been breaking it down, maybe three weeks on Job. Uh, but my, <laughs> you think three, Dan? So I'm guessing. But then we'll take on Proverbs, um, Song of Songs, and then Ecclesiastes. Job is, is what you might call the proverbial godly man. Um, so keep, look over at Proverbs 1 before we look at Job's one, Job 1. And look at, for example, verse 7. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Job is a man who fears the Lord. He is the kind of proverbial godly man. He fears the Lord. Um, now what happens with the man who fears the Lord, who walks in his wisdom or his law? So look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1. There's one up here, and then you could probably pull up another one, guys. Um, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is also a description of what we see with Job. He's the godly man who fears the Lord, who walks in his law, meditates on it. Now notice verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he what? Prospers. He prospers. Okay? Job is the proverbial godly man who is prosperous. If you guys, when we look at the introduction of the book of Job, what you're going to notice is, what we call the prologue, what you're going to notice is, Job is a godly man who fears the Lord and who is prosperous. Just like Proverbs and Psalms tells us it will be. God smiles upon him in his godliness and prospers him. He just does, okay? Uh, yet, what, what becomes interesting about Job is if you just read Proverbs by itself, just read the book of Proverbs by itself, as you read it, you think, well, listen, if you work hard, you're going to get the gain. Right? If you keep your mouth shut, you're going to have good friends. If you are honoring the king, things will go well with you. You know, you could go down the list of kinds of things that Proverbs sort of seems to promise. If you fear the Lord and walk in his wisdom, you'll avoid the adulterous woman. If you marry wisely, you'll have a great marriage, right, etc., etc. Um, you'll just be blessed in all these ways. In other words, if you read Proverbs you can start to do a math that will cause you problems in life um, if you don't have a fuller-orbed understanding of the wisdom literature. 
Uh, let me give you the one that most of us, when our kids get older, start to struggle with if we haven't paid attention growing up to the whole, whole of scripture, Scripture's canon or the canon of Scripture. Um, here it is. Raise a child in the way he should go, and when he is older, he will he'll not depart from it. Okay, so just basically, when you're reading the Proverbs, here's the general wisdom. Do this, this will go well with you. Do this, this will go poorly for you. Do this, this will go well with you. Do this, this will go poorly for you. You guys following me on that? Okay, so Job's the proverbial godly man who's walking in the fear of the Lord and things are going well for him. Right? Really well. And then... We're learning from Job, though, in the whole of the story that um, Job shows that godly and wise men are subject to serious suffering. Which nuance is really what we read in Proverbs. It's what you get a hold of. When you're reading Proverbs, you get one sense of the godly, wise, you know, if you have a God-fearing, wise life. When you're reading Job, you go, oh, but it doesn't have to go well for me. <laughs> right? It's not, this isn't a math equation. Do this, and I automatically... Get this, all right? Uh, we need to keep in mind that wisdom literature does not really advance the story of God's people. I want to say that. So when we're looking at Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, we're not going to advance the story of God's people living in God's kingdom under God's rule and blessing. However, wisdom literature does teach us how God's people ought to live in his typical kingdom. And that was the old covenant kingdom, how they ought to live. And in his inaugurated kingdom, in other words, his new covenant kingdom, right? Prior to the consummation of the new creation. So as we live in this kingdom, we're learning how we ought to live here while we're waiting for the return of Christ. Are you guys following me on that? So the wisdom literature is not going to forward the story. You're not going to really learn elements that tell you, here's um, some more stuff about the unfolding story of the Bible. But the wisdom literature is going to tell you, hey, you're waiting for this kingdom of God to come. How do you live while you're waiting? How do you do that? Right? The kingdom of God has come for us. It's here. It wasn't just a type like with Israel. It's here. How do we, wait while, how do we live while we wait for the consummation? That's what the wisdom literature is teaching us. How are you supposed to live? I'm going to say it this way. How are you supposed to live as a Christian in God's kingdom as you await the return of Christ? And the wisdom literature is giving you a picture of that. Um, so we'll spend time looking at it as such. Job is really broken down this way. If you want an outline of Job, this isn't mine. This is from Richard Belcher. Um, it's a simple one. The prologue, right? You guys know what the word prologue means? You, you see it on books, prologue. What's that, Cutter? Yeah, first word. Okay, logos, word, uh, pro is like this one coming before. It's, it's essentially, it's the first word, Okay. The first word, the prologue, is in Job 1 and 2. It's kind of giving you the context of who Job is and, what's, and this heavenly council that meets and what happens to him. Okay? Then you've got Job's lament in chapter 3. If you read his, his lament where he brings a curse down upon his, his own birth. And then you have a cycle of speeches. So in Job 3, you have his lament. And then you've got his friend's essentially saying, hearing his lament and saying, well, let, me tell, let us tell you what we think about that um, and what's really going on with you. There's a cycle of speeches Job's three friends give. You guys remember, 
What's the story of Job's friends? How on the money are they? Huh? They suck? Is that what you said? They're, they're a mixed bag. So the story is they're a mixed bag. In some ways, they're really good friends. And in some ways, they're, they're um, over-applying their theology to Job's situation. Um, it's almost like they're saying, well, um, because things are going poorly with you, you must have sinned in some way. Certainly you've done something to bring da- this down upon your head, right? And Job's responding to that. Um, and you get, you, then you get jo- a wisdom poem. You get Job's last speech in 29 through 30, chapters 29 through 30. You get Elihu's speeches then. Now, Elihu is interesting because we'll deal with him, but he's this Jew who comes in um, among the Gentiles and, and is actually quite wise. Um, and then you get God's speech, right, or speeches, and Job's response. Um, and then finally you get an epilogue, right? That's just kind of the, the breakdown. So here's your buildup with the prologue the setting of the story. Here's Job's lament. Here's his three friends responding. Here's Job responding to them. Here comes Elihu to give his take, which seems to be wise. Um, and, then, and then here comes God, and Job responds to God after God speaks, and, and then you get the epilogue. So we'll just break it down that way, but this morning we're going to look um, really at uh, the prologue. Here's a, pro, a couple preliminary observations. First, the prologue and the epilogue are prose. Do you guys know what I mean by prose? When I say prose, what do I mean? Chapters 1 and 2, and then really chapter uh, 42, you've got prose. What is that? Okay, good. So prose, and Tim's going to give us a very technical definition. The style of the writing is not is not, you know, really following any meter. Um, it's not poetry. It's narration. It's a narrative. You're just getting a story. In chapters 1 and 2, and then at the very end, you're getting narrative. In between there, from Job 3 all the way through to, that la- to the epilogue, it's poetry. Okay, it's poetry. You're reading poetry. It's very descriptive. Any, any guesses as to what's the point in the midst of these speeches and Job's response and God's speech, in the midst of Job's suffering, what's the point of using poetry? Memory. Good, good shot. Good shot at it. Any other? Any others? Good. You guys know this from, from uh, if you read good poetry, which we, we don't do anymore. Poetry, like song, can have a way of, of connecting emotionally um, in a way that just a narrative doesn't. Right? It just has a way of connecting emotionally the way it communicates. Um, this, is, this book is not to be read like some kind of distant theological treatise. Here's a real historical man who's really suffering and he's really lamenting and his friends are really trying to interact with him helpfully, though they're not always being helpful, right? 
And we're learning the wisdom of how to um, suffer and how to come alongside of someone who's suffering. Both, right? Um, all right. So, um, Job is the story of a Gentile believer. Can you guys see that? It's a story of a Gentile believer in Yahweh during the patriarchal period. So that's what I'm going to look at because this is remarkable. I actually would contend that Moses, uh, Moses is the most likely author of the book of Job. Um, the reason I contend that is a lot of the phrases Job uses are, are phrases that you see in Genesis directly. The way he tends to address things in the Hebrew um, are very similar to the way that you'll see them addressed in Genesis, um, the particular phrases Moses will use, the author of Job uses. The, the book of Job, I want you to hear this, takes place during the patriarchal period. Do you guys know when the patriarchal period is? What am I talking about? Whose lives are the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this book takes place during the patriarchal period. Now I want you to hear this because it's really important. What's the point of the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Um, who are the people of God per covenant? The, the, the offspring of Abraham. Is a Gentile at that period an offspring of Abraham? Physically. I'm just talking physically. This isn't a tough one. Okay, so I know you guys are early. Is a physical Gentile the offspring of Abraham? No, right? Yet Job is the story of a, of a man who loves and fears Yahweh who's a Gentile during the period of the patriarchs. It's remarkable, actually. Um, so Job, look at Job 1. I'll, I'll demonstrate this a bit, that he's a Gentile. Job 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, just so we're clear from your biblical geography, Uz is a Gentile area. It's not an area of Jews, it's an area of Gentiles. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless. Um, in other words, blameless is another word for without hypocrisy. Consistent, right? Blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. Now look at verse 3. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the what? Of the east. Okay? Of the east. This is not um, a Jew. This is a Gentile. But notice how his Wealth is described, right? You guys remember anybody else whose wealth is described this way? Abraham. Abraham, right? Isaac and Jacob, their wealth gets described very much in the same way. Uh, what's also interesting, and I'll just point this out now because I'm not going to go through and show you, but um, the word El Shaddai, El Shaddai, anybody know what that is? El is God. God Almighty, El Shaddai, which is used in Genesis 17 when God addresses Abraham. Um, he's El Shaddai, God Almighty. That phrase for God 
is used uh, more in the book of Job than in the rest of the Old Testament. That term, El Shaddai, God Almighty, it's used more in the book of Job than the rest of the Old Testament combined. Um, all right, so it's the period of the patriarchs. Let me prove that. Um, for one, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. This man was the greatest of the people of all the East. That is very much like a description of someone during the period of the patriarchs. So go to Genesis 13. Keep your hand in Job and go to Genesis 13. I want to show you this a bit. And look at verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, and he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abraham was very rich in what? Livestock and, and silver and in gold. Now go to chapter 14. And look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born of his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit of Dan. So he has all these trained men in his house. He has very much, you know, livestock, etc. This is just who he is. Let me give you another description. Um, keep your hand in Genesis. Just turn to Genesis 25. 25. And let's look at verse 7 and 8. We're talking about Abraham. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, right? Verse 5, verse 6, but to the sons of, a concubines, of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, Isaac eastward to the east country. Remember, he's, Job's in the land of Uz in the east, right? Um, that's outside of Abraham's territory. Now, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. You guys catch that description of his life? Okay, now go to Job 42. And verse 17, the very, or, well, look at verse 16, 17. And after this, after this, Job lived 140 years. Now, why would I pick that up and say this must be in the period of the patriarchs? After all this stuff, after like Job was a successful man with wife and kids, grown children, the whole thing, they all died. He goes through all the suffering. God restores to him a wife and kids again. And he goes on. After this, he lived 140 years. Why do I say that puts you in the period of the patriarchs? What's that? Because of how long of the lifespan? Abraham lived 175 years. How many people do you know that live 175 years? Or after having a family wiped out and starting a new family, live an additional 140 years, right? This is putting you in the period of the patriarchs. Just is. Now look what it goes on to say. And saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died. Now notice. An old man and what? 
full of days. That's the same kind of language with regard to Abraham, isn't it? Same phrase. So we have a man who's a Gentile believer during the period of the patriarchs. Further, he's, in, he's a priest of Yahweh. Look at Job 1 again. Go back to Job 1. On behalf of his family. I'm going to read verse 4 and 5. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. Do you guys know what it means to consecrate? I mean, we just throw this word around. You need to be consecrated to the Lord. What does it mean? What does it mean to consecrate? What's that, Keaton? Okay, yeah, so when you're consecrated, what do you get to do? Huh? Yeah, come before God. You get to worship. Right? You get to worship. You enter, you enter worship. So remember, the people would need to be consecrated. The priests would need to be consecrated. And the people would need to be consecrated. Even the sacrifices would need to be consecrated in order to come into the tabernacle. Do you guys remember that? Okay. Um, that's what we're told in Hebrews. That's the language that's used a lot. Sometimes we translate it sanctification, but it doesn't mean sanctification like in the sense of you're progressively growing in holiness. It means sanctified in the sense of you're set apart or consecrated for worship. You can now draw near to worship. Right? So he consecrates them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Right? So he'd offer burnt offerings for his kids. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. What's Job functioning as? A priest. On behalf of his kids. It may be they, they sinned and cursed God in their hearts, so I need to consecrate them and bring an offering before God on their behalf. He's functioning as a priest. Now, I want to be clear. It's remarkable. You have a Gentile priest of Yahweh offering sacrifices um, on behalf of his potentially sinful children. Right? <clears throat> the name of Yahweh and El Shaddai are used in Job consistent with Genesis. Both Yahweh and El Shaddai are used in the book of Job. Like I told you, El Shaddai, more than any other book in the Old Testament, more than all the rest of the Old Testament combined. Yahweh is also used here, both of which are consistent with Genesis. Yahweh is used first in Genesis 2-4, right? It's Elohim all the way through Genesis 1, and then Yahweh, Genesis 2-4, Yahweh with Elohim together, the Lord our God um, together, and then El Shaddai in Genesis 17, um, and that covenant with Abraham. So it's very consistent. Job is the blessed man and wise man of Psalm 1 and Proverbs 1-7. That's what I showed you guys. That's who he is. Listen to the description in Job 1, 1-5 again. We're going to read it again and hear this blessed, godly man who happens to be a Gentile. <clears throat> but it's blessed. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Does this sound like the man of Psalm 1? Absolutely. Or Proverbs 1-7, for sure. <clears throat> there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. 
He had 10 children, right? He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. He's the richest man in the Eastern Gentile territory. So he's godly. He's, God has made him fruitful and multiplied him. Right? He's been blessed with many children. His quiver is full. <clears throat> right? He is the blessed man. Godly, God-fearing, <clears throat> lots of children, wealthiest man among the Gentiles. He's exactly what um, everyone reading the Proverbs or Psalm 1 hopes they'll be. I'll be godly. God will bless me with much wealth, many children, great happiness, right? His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So the family gets along well. They enjoy each other's company, right? And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would Rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did, notice the emphasis, what? Continually. This is a priest of God on behalf of his family who honors the Lord. I mean, when you read Job 1, 1 through 5, you think to yourself, um, surely all, is gonna, all has gone well with this godly man. All will continue to go well with this godly man. Because, listen, um, he is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. You know, its leaf does not wither, yields its fruit in its season. And all that he does, he prospers. So that's what's remarkable, really, about the next scene. It's important that we recognize this as Job presents a problem um, that if we fail to think through biblically, we'll either fault Job where we shouldn't, or find God to be capricious and dishonest. Um, what do I mean by that? Job is a book that presents you a problem that if you don't think through well, um, you will think poorly about suffering. Because every time suffering comes, you'll either look at the sufferer. I want you guys to get a hold of this. There are people you know who suffer, right? Sometimes intensely more so than others. All of us will suffer in some ways. Some people suffer intensely more than others. You know them. You can commit an error of somehow suggesting or thinking that they're being disciplined for sin when they're in fact not. Is it possible to suffer as a result of discipline for sin? Absolutely. Right? Hebrews 12 is clear about that. God disciplines the one he loves. That is absolutely possible that you suffer as a result of discipline for sin, right? Um, James 4 or 5, James 5, when you come to the elders to pray, if you're sick, one of the things he says to do is confess your sins. You might be sick because of your sin. 1 Corinthians 11, people take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, right? They, they get sick, Paul says, and they die, Okay? So is it possible that God will judge you in that way, even as a believer, to discipline you? Yes. Yes. Is it so that everyone who suffers suffers for their own sin? No. no. 
And, and so you have to know that. Job's wanting you to know that, right? That's what the book's trying to teach you. You don't always suffer for your own sin. You don't always know what's going on, right? So that's um, one thing. You know, and you may, if, if, has anybody ever hit a really deep period of suffering and you think to yourself, why has this happened? I've, I've done the things you asked me to do. Um, and, there, and there you are. The other, uh, the other error you could commit is the notion that God is just capricious or dishonest. Well, he promised if I was a godly man, I'd prosper, and I'm being a godly man, and I'm suffering. Right? Um, and so he's just capricious. He's dishonest. Um, that's one of the kind of charges that can come. So Job is really guarding against those errors. You don't always suffer because of sin, right? And God is not being capricious or dishonest. You just don't actually know what's going on, right? So we want to be careful that, to understand that that's what's being guarded. So is Job really just a believer in a prosperity gospel? That's what's going to come up, right? Is he really just a believer in a prosperity gospel? Does he just want God's benefits or does he want God? How do I know that? Let's look at verse 6 and let's read through. Now there was, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. The sons of God is a way of describing the angels here, right? Um, that's a colloquialism for angels, the sons of God. Here come the angels before the Lord. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and notice that, notice what is the Lord's in, in your Bibles? All caps, before Yahweh. And Satan also came among them. Literally in, in the Hebrew, the Satan. Right, it's, there's an article. The Satan, which is, what is the Satan? It's the adversary, the accuser, right? Um, he, he came, also came among them. So, here come the sons of God before God, and here comes in the accuser, the adversary among them. Now, now, what's interesting is the address. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now, I haven't worked out this language yet, but I've been thinking some about the use of this language in Amos, walking to and fro and in Daniel because the people go to and fro like um, in the Septuagint like crazy fools. They run to and fro on the earth. Um, Amos gets to the same thing. It seems to be often a description of, of ungodly, foolish activity, right? Um, but I've got to work it out here still. But the point is, the Lord addresses him. Satan comes in. Notice that, that language, though, in verse 6, and Satan also came among them. He's singled out uh, because he really doesn't belong there. Right? The sons of God, they do. They've come in. Now they're, they're singling out Satan from them. And the Lord says to him, from where have you come? Right? In other words, the Lord's going to single him out. And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan... Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? This is fascinating. 
Why, why is it fascinating? What, what, what is, let's just stop and consider this for a moment. Satan comes in among the angels before God, and God's like, what are you doing here? Where'd you come from? And he's like, I've been roaming the earth. Okay, the adversary, the accuser, accuser comes in. God's like, okay, have you considered my servant Job? He's a godly man. He's blameless. What, what's, he, he fears me. He turns from evil. Why is this an interesting sort of exchange? Is he just allowing him, though? He's initiating. Yeah. He's initiating. God's like, Satan isn't coming up saying, hey, I'd like to give Job a run. Let me give him a run. Right? God's like, hey, have you considered giving Job a run? Right? It's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, now, what you need to know is Job, what you learn in the book of Job is Job is never, nor are his friends, ever aware that this scene in heaven has happened. The author's telling you this scene in heaven has happened, but Job and his friends don't know this scene has happened. They know nothing about it, right? And that's part of the point of the story. You actually have no idea what's going on in God's economy. Yes, sir? Oh, I think there's, some, there's certainly a contest between God and Satan. And I think that's a helpful point, Keaton, because if you guys remember, especially I emphasize it in Exodus, but you see it in Genesis, you see it in Exodus, there's a lot of contest language in the scriptures. God versus the false gods. So if you think of like God or Yahweh versus the gods of Egypt, or God versus um, um, the, gods of ba- uh, the god of Baal. You guys remember that? Okay, with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Or in Daniel, God versus Nebuchadnezzar and his gods. Or God versus um, Darius and his gods. You guys remember this kind of contest language. It runs through scripture. Your gods are false. Right? And, um, and you have a sort of contest happening here. Essentially, God's like, Job belongs to me. You think you can, you think you can kill his perseverance? Have you given a run? Look, he's a godly man. Have you considered whether, he, whether, whether you could take him down? Right? Do you think you can get him out of my grip? Do you think you can? It's a fascinating scene, right? So he goes on to say, Then, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Okay, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. What, what's Satan's charge? If you take it all away from him, he'll curse you. Basically, you've made his life good. Of course he loves you. So Satan's charge is, Job's a prosperity gospel guy. That's what he's essentially saying. 
Job just believes in a prosperity gospel. As long as you prosper him, he's good, but take it away. We'll see. Um, does, he doesn't really want you. He wants what you give him. That's a challenge that Satan's coming back to God with. Job doesn't want you. Job wants your benefits. Right? In other words, is God really, and it's also a, a it's not a, that's not just an attack on Job, it's an attack on God. Right? Is God really good in himself, thus causing worship, or, or is it only your gifts that lead to worship? In other words, once the people know you, is, is that enough for them to really want to worship, or, or do they also need your gifts to elicit worship? Um, this is getting right back, by the way, to the garden in some sense, isn't it? When the serpent or the adversary comes into the garden, any challenges? Is God really good? Like, and why do I say is he's challenging the notion of God's goodness? What's the story of Genesis 1? The creation. What does God keep pronouncing? It's good. It's good. What I do is good. I am good, and I do good. You get to Genesis 2. Here he's in the garden. You can eat everything. Look at all the food I've given you that's good to eat. Just don't eat from that tree. Satan comes along. What's the challenge? God's withholding a good from you. Look how good it is. He's keeping it back. Is he really good? And Satan's essentially coming to God with the same charge against Job and against God. You're not really good. They don't really see you as good. They just want your goods. Right? Um, okay. The, there are invisible realities of which Job is not aware. That's what we get at. There are invisible realities of which Job is not aware that are behind his prosperity and his suffering. Um, God has sovereignly worked for purposes of which Job is never aware. I want to stress that. He's never aware. So let's keep reading. Um, verse, uh, right after verse 11, he said, you'll, he'll curse you to your face. That's a challenge. But stretch out your hand. I want to reread that because that becomes the challenge. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Um, you, you need to keep in mind, and this is probably something you need to keep in mind in your cosmology, Satan is always under the authority of God, even the adversary. He can only do what God permits. We know that because it's not just that, um, that God offers people up, but if you remember Jesus Jesus saying to uh, the apostles, you guys remember his warning to them? Particularly Peter. What was the warning? Satan is seeking to sift you like wheat. And Jesus is basically saying, he's basically telling Peter something that's happening in the heavenly council that Peter's unaware of. Jesus is making him aware. Satan is up there asking if he can essentially rip you to shreds. And we're going to let him. That's what he says. I'm going to let him. Right? Um, <laughs> it's not, you know, you're going, uh. And so, but here, here's the point is, Satan can't do anything without God's permission. Without, he can't do anything that's outside of God's decree. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters so we're going to hear about Satan stretching out his hand. 
There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job. Now, as far as we know, they're not getting drunk. Job is concerned that maybe sometimes they are, so he's offering um, burnt offerings for them. But it seems to be that this is a scene in the context that this is a scene of, you know, wine makes the heart glad, that, they're, that this is kind of a blessing. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, what does Satan use to take out uh, in this scene? Who's, who's he using? As a neighboring people. So an enemy people have attacked them. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So now there's some kind of a natural phenomenon that's supernatural, really, that, that takes them out. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed... Three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants at the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Okay, this is a pretty traumatic scene. You're Job. You're just standing there getting, while others are testifying to your misfortune, here comes another wave, right? Essentially, everything you have has been taken from you. It's all gone, right? It's all gone. Your, your children, your wife's still around, your children are gone. All of your wealth is gone. Your servants are gone. All your oxen and camels and sheep, you know, it's all gone. It's been gone. Enemy nations attacked you or enemy peoples. The Chaldeans, the Sabaeans, they attacked you. Uh, natural disasters, if you will, spurred on by Satan, have come upon you, right? And you've lost everything. Now imagine, one guy's witnessing to one thing, and then the next thing comes along, right? So here's Job's scene. It's, it's, it's a bit fascinating. I don't have time to get into all this. Um, James, I'm sure, Dalzell will deal with it during his week on... Um, on decree, creation, and providence. But, but here's when he teaches in the RTI. But, but God decrees that, jo- that Satan shall do this thing. Satan does it, and then he does it through enemy peoples, natural disasters, etc. Um, and one of the things you're learning is that uh, not everything happening around you is just, you know, some natural occurrence, right? That, that, there, there, are, there are enemy nations, enemy peoples, natural disasters, things that occur that are, that are actually satanic, right? By the decree of God, bringing suffering upon godly people that are really happening, um, so he goes on, and I know, I know we live in a very naturalistic sort of world where we don't think about the things occurring around us being that way, but they, they often are, right? Um, there's no, there's no randomness. You guys understand that? 
Um, there isn't a random molecule in the universe. Everything's intentional. If there was, there, you would be an atheist. Because there'd be something not God out there, right, that's in charge of stuff that God isn't. <laughs> you guys follow the problem? Um, so now here Job is, suffering. Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and what? Worshipped. What was Satan's challenge? What's he going to do? Curse you to your face. Here's the answer. He worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is fascinating. Job does not say, uh, you know what? What right, God, do you have to take away from me? Job recognizes two facts of his life. One is that everything he had came from who? God. And he deserved none of it. He deserved none of it. It's all the Lord's. I don't deserve any of it. And, and he recognizes that the Lord can give it when he wants, and the Lord can take it when he wants. So, so maybe, brothers, I should slow down just for a beat for you to think about that. Everything you have comes from the Lord. He gives it when he wants, and he takes it when he wants. Right? Um, and your response is, blessed be the name of the Lord. I'll worship him. He can do as he wills. Right? So if you're receiving, you should look at everything around you and go, this is all from his gracious hand. He can give it whenever he wants and he can take it whenever he wants. And I don't have any right to curse him either way. Right? Um, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Right? That's the challenge of Satan. He's going to sin and charge you with wrong, but he doesn't. In all this, this, this is an incredibly godly man. Um, let's look at chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So we're getting a repeat of that scene. Another heavenly council, if you will. And the Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. In, in other words, there's no sin in Job that's the cause of this. But, but without reason, it doesn't mean that God was like, I just decided to smack him for no good purpose at all. That's not what he's saying. When he, when he says without reason, he means there's no sin in Job that caused this. 
There's no sin in him that brought this about. Um, this is some kind of contest between God and Satan happening in the heavenly realms, challenging the very nature of God's goodness. Do you guys follow that? And Job is, is, is a victim of it, if you will. Um, and a hero in it. Nothing, nothing he did brought this about. Then, then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, he will curse you to your face. You guys notice in the contest coming up again. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And, he, and, and, and here's Job. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. You think about how nasty the pain must be to be scraping yourself with broken pottery, right? Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Notice that again. What's the emphasis at the very end? He didn't sin. He didn't open his mouth and sin. He didn't curse God. He believes God is good. You guys, you guys hear that? God can bring good and God can bring calamity. And God can do it all, right? He creates good. He creates calamity. Um, and, and I'm going to trust him. Okay. What we're learning here is how we wisely respond to suffering as those awaiting the consummate kingdom. Not how we account for an individual suffering. In other words, you're not learning in Job how to account for an individual suffering. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? You're not, you're not finding out, what did Job do wrong that brought this? You, you don't know. Job and his friends don't know why this is happening. Job's wife doesn't know. None of them know about the heavenly throne room scene. They don't know what's happening. I mean, they don't know why. They know it's happening. They don't know why. Um, and, and how do you respond? We're going to see the responses of Job's wife and Job's three friends. So I'm going to look at their initial responses. We're going to look at further responses of Job's friends next, uh, well, not next week, because we won't meet next week, but the week after we'll look at further responses. But look, let's look at his wife's response, Job 2.9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Augustine said Job's wife is the assistant of Satan. First thing he said, Job's wife is just Satan's assistant. That's how he comments on it. That's what Augustine says. Chrysostom says, Chrysostom the golden mouth preacher, same era as Augustine essentially, he said that one of Job's trials is that his wife did not die also. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, so okay. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, all right, so, um, how, <laughs> you, you, anyways, uh, that, that caught me, I had to tell you that one, because I just thought, that is so funny, all right, 
I, I think maybe Augustine and Job, I mean, and Chrysostom are a little too hard on Job's wife, uh, though I understand to some degree what they're getting at. I think it's a little much. Job's wife seems to be agreeing with God, right? Seems to be agreeing with God about Job's integrity. Notice what she says. Then the wife said, do you still hold fast your integrity? Right? Um, she saw him hold fast his integrity. Now she seems to be asking him, you still hold fast your integrity? Like, in other words, her declaration about Job is, are you still going to be a godly man in the face of this? Now, that's also a kind of provocative question, right? You shouldn't really continue to be a godly man. But she's at least recognizing the truth about him. I'm ready to curse God and die, she's saying. You, you still are continuing to be a godly man, right? It's, it's kind of a, a compliment and, a, and a, a, a jab all at the same time, if you guys follow. Um, and also, she's struggling with suffering. Let's not forget, ten, all ten of her children are dead. Okay? Um, that, I mean, it's one thing to say, what kind of woman tells her husband this in the midst of these circumstances? The kind of woman that probably every single one of us is married to if we're married. The kind of woman who struggles when ten children die. And you lose all of your wealth. And your husband's covered with boils. Right? Like, that kind of woman might think, let's curse God and die at this point. Right? It's real suffering. It's happening. Job corrects her error by saying she is speaking foolishly, not by calling her a fool. Note the distinction. Verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Um, Job doesn't say, you are a fool. If you declare someone to be a fool in the Old Testament context, what are you calling them? Huh? Yeah, they're cursed, they're an unbeliever. Right? He's not saying that. He's saying you speak like, you're speaking like one. So I'll just stop in defense of Job's wife for a minute. Is she sinning? Yes. Is Job sinning? No. Um, how many of you, when you suffer anywhere near this range, tend to uh, respond like Job or tend to respond a bit more like Job's wife? You, you guys follow me on that? So we'll have a bit of compassion for Job's wife here um, and understanding. Have you ever, in the midst of suffering, spoken like an unbeliever about your suffering. Not, not, not you are an unbeliever in this midst of suffering, became an unbeliever, but you're struggling and you spoke like one. Right? Um, I spoke like one. I will remember when my wife was quite ill and I didn't know if I'd ever return to pastoral ministry. Jason was 25 years old, Jason Faber. He was a single 25-year-old pastor when the situation happened for six weeks, um, he had been a pastor. Um, and we had gone through this thing for seven months. And somewhere in the middle of the ordeal, I said to Jason, some of you have heard me say this before, I said to Jason, I can't wait for this to end so I can return to my calling, to what God has called me to. I'm just so frustrated I'm going through this. And I want it to be over so I can return to what God has called me to. I was speaking like an unbeliever. And so Jason rebuked me. He said, brother, this is what God has called you to. 
Do what he's called you to do. Okay, you're right, right? Um, I need to grow up. Uh, anyway, it's remarkable wisdom at the time for a 25-year-old single guy, right? Um, as you guys understand, Jason's not like the rest of us. So look, look, at, look at the response of Job's friends, Job's three friends. Now when Job's three friends, verse 11, when Job's three friends heard all of, this, of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. Now, these are the three friends that respond, um, that will read their speeches before we get to Eliu. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. In other words, these three friends of Job think, hey, listen to what's happened to Job. We need to all three get together and go over there and care for him, show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him because if he was so beat up, right? And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, um, what sort of reply is this from his friends? Are these godly and wise friends at this point? Absolutely. These friends are being godly. They're being wise. They recognize he just needs us to sit here with him. He doesn't need us to say a thing, right? And so, so they don't. They don't start speaking until Job laments, and then they have some things to say, right? But prior to that, they're, they're being very helpful. I, you need to understand the mixed bag that these friends are. They're not bad friends, um, they're trying to be good friends. They get it wrong. But at times, they're, at this, like this scene, they're gloriously right. right? But then in other scenes, they, they get it quite wrong. Um, so the initial response of Job's three friends is quite good. The initial response of Job's wife understandab- is understandably a sinful response. What's Job's response again and again? the right one. He, he responds um, quite well. Now, I've run out of time, so I'll pick up Job 3 um, and then put that in, co- in context with the speeches next week. Um, because we're going to, Job 3, 1 starts off with this interesting, or two weeks, this Job 3, 1 starts off with this interesting thing. After, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. So it's the first curse we're going to hear from Job. And so we'll address that. Um, that curse, right? But, and then jo- the, the response of Job's friends to that. Questions you guys have before I wrap it up? Yes, sir. How did Job know what was sin, what was right, being a Gentile? We're never told that. How did Job know what was sin and what was right, being a Gentile? Well, it doesn't just seem to be that Job knows the natural law, which we all know that <clears throat> you shouldn't commit certain sins. We just know that. It's written on our hearts. It seems that Job knows who Yahweh is and even knows that offerings, burnt offerings need to be offered on behalf of his, of his family's sin. He's functioning as a priest. How does Job 
function as a Gentile priest. We're not really told. It's sort of like Melchizedek, who comes out of Salem. You guys remember the story of Melchizedek? He comes out of Salem or Jerusalem. He's the king of righteousness and peace and a priest of Most High God. Like, there he is, and blesses Abraham, and there he goes, right? Like, you're like, wow, who is this dude? And Hebrews 7 just tells us we have no idea where he came from. Like, we don't know, right? And um, I, I think that it's similar with Job. Like, how, how is he familiar? Somehow he's familiar. The text doesn't tell us anywhere that I'm aware of. Anybody aware of anywhere the text of Job tells us? Sure, Abraham was, that's right, was a Gentile. So, yeah, it's the covenant that makes him the father of the Jews, not his ethnicity. Something people tend to miss a lot of times. Yes, sir. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think he's clearly a godly man because God has made it so. And that's why I said it's a contest between Job, I mean, between God and Satan, really. Because can you get him from my hand? Can you get him to, like, I've graced him this way. Can you, can you cause him to stop persevering, right? And Satan's unable to. Job is certainly a type of the Christ. That's the point of the sort of narrative arc of the, the book, which we'll get to. He's a godly man who suffers for no fault of no of no fault of his own, and then who has 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 even more glory restored to him when you get to the end. The point isn't if you suffer well, God will give you all your children and wealth back. That's not the point of the story, right? The point is actually Job goes through suffering for no fault of his own, comes out of it, and then receives some kind of glory that was better than the beginning. Right? Um, and so you have a narrative arc much like with the Psalter from suffering to glory and Job plays this type of the Christ now there are places where Job commits error in the book you'll see that Um, and God rebukes it God deals with it but so there's a lot of ways in which Job is a type of the Christ and and, in some ways he's not he's like God's people so he, he might play to some degree both roles Right? He's both a type of the Christ and a type of the people. Just like David does. Just, just like, I mean, almost every type in the Old Testament, nobody, the, none of the types in the Old Testament where you're like, man, this guy is just like Jesus in every way. Right? <laughs> so um, you'll see both. But there's a lot of contours here. There's no way I have time to get into all the contours of Job for the purpose of what we're doing here. We'll just kind of fly through the book and two more weeks most likely. So two, two weeks from today, we'll meet and go um, over as much as we can. I hope to get through at least chapter 26. Um, and, then, and then we'll meet the week after that and try to finish Job, and then we'll move to the next book, uh, which would be Proverbs, I believe. So any, any other questions? Yes, sir. Satan was the one that was causing the suffering. But in 2.10, it's saying that, uh, that the good and the evil come 
Yeah, yeah, God is, God is the first cause of all things. That's certainly Job understands that. Job has some remarkable insights. Some of his friends, have, particularly Elihu, has remarkable insights. But, but Elihu is the Jewish friend who will come along, which is interesting as well. But um, he, he has, um, he's definitely understands that nothing, nothing that occurs is outside, is outside of the decree or the will of God. It's all happening because God has willed it. That, yeah, Job is clear on that. We're not always clear on that. For us, we look at that and go, how could God do this? For them, they're like, yeah, of course it came from the Lord. The, even Job's friends don't ask, did it come from the Lord? They want to know, what did you do to tick him off? <laughs> right? like, <laughs> you, know what, you know what I'm saying? Like, they don't wonder that, right? So, <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, except that um, sometimes he does. Um, so God permits him to use weather. So, like, for example, there's one of the tempest scenes on the lake where Jesus quells the tempest. He rebukes the storm. It seems quite clear that it's actually a demonic storm. And he rebukes it or speaks to it. Um, yeah, so they do use weather. Um, God gives them, angels are powerful in ways that we're not really, we don't think a lot about them, but they're there. They're active. They're there at creation. We'll see that in Job 38. You'll see that on Sunday because when God creates the heavens and the earth, what, is, what all does that include? And the angels, angels are created in that verse, if you will, and they're, they're present in Job 38, 7. They're present at the first day, the beginnings of the earth, rejoicing in God. So they're, they're created beings, but they're powerful in ways that we're not, and they're permitted by God to do certain things. But they don't do anything he doesn't permit. But they're certainly more powerful than you or me. Like, you, remember, you guys remember Sodom and Gomorrah? What, the angels just touch them and the crowd goes blind. You guys remember that? They, they just have, they have some sort of abilities that are beyond what we do. That's why it's like, you know, you don't get to just rebuke Satan. You guys remember that? And Jude and other places, you just don't get to rebuke him. Like, in the name of the Lord, maybe. But on your own? He's going to take you. Luther would warn about that. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer. He's kind of funny because he's, he's medieval. So he, would, he, he, he thought, well, one of the ways to chase off demons was to fart at them. <laughs> right? And so he would say, you know, if demons are messing with you, fart at them. They'll take off. And then he says, but be careful because some of those demons, it'll just tick them off and they will beat you down, right? Like, and so, <laughs> yeah, anyway, so we, we live in a world in which we don't ever consider the possibility of that kind of activity. They live in a world where that kind of activity is, is pretty normative. And biblically, it's, it's normative activity. I don't mean to get you into magical thinking like the medievals would have, like Luther was afraid of the forest at night because of sprites and fairies and such. I don't mean to get you into that kind of thinking, that sort of medieval um, magical thinking, but we, we definitely need to have a biblical worldview, you know, a biblical understanding of the world or accounting for the world, which is that, that there are angels and demons and they're really at work. And they, they, use, they use nature uh, at times. 
right? And God sometimes sends them to use nature. And there are some scenes that happen, even contemporarily, that you have to stop and sit back and go, I don't know that I can say that's the Lord, but man, does that sure look like it was him. So you guys know the scene in, in, um, in uh, Minneapolis that happened years ago, 2007, I believe. Huh? No, the, the, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America was, was gathering in Minneapolis at the city. There's, um, there's the historic Evangelical Lutheran Church that's there in the city. And then across from that is the convention center for the city of Minneapolis. And they were having their national convention there. And they were meeting, and it was like 2 p.m., I think, I believe, if I get it right. 2 p.m., they were meeting to vote for allowing like homosexual ordination and all that kind of stuff. You guys remember that? You remember the story in the news? Uh, it, was on the, it was all over the news. Right as soon as they were about to meet at 2 p.m., dropping out of the sky from nowhere, no storm, nothing, a funnel cloud drops at 2 p.m., tears the cross off the church, rips up the convention center, and goes away. And then the news is like, what? And everybody in the building is like, and they actually discussed it on the floor. Well, this wasn't the Lord telling us not to do this. Let's continue forward. Like, <laughs> and I remember on the news, people were going, hey, uh, that one's a little different, right? Like, <laughs> so anyway, I don't know. But, but the fact that Christians, I heard Christians saying, well, that couldn't have been the Lord using an angel or something to send them a message. Why not? Could have been, certainly. Certainly could have been. Do we know that? No. We don't have divine revelation telling us that's in fact what happened, but it's certainly possible. Yeah. Well, oh, absolutely. The lies are the problem. But certainly, you know, it's, it's at least worth considering, could this have been the Lord sending a message? Mm, you know? I mean, you, you look at a lot of things. Um, when you see plagues, the Lord doesn't see the plagues as somehow detached from any kind of judging work he's doing. So when you see COVID plague the earth, is it just, is, is there judgment in it? Is the Lord doing that? Sure. Do we exactly know why? No, this is where pastors cross the sort of bridge and start saying things that they don't know. This is happening because of homosexuality in San Francisco or something like that, right? You know, you guys have seen those kind of things. Earthquake in San Francisco happens or when Louisiana, the, when, the, when the hurricane happened and, oh, it's because of the witchcraft and homosexuality in, Louis in New Orleans. We don't know that. If that's what it is, then, then like, why, isn't, why aren't all the cities being wiped out? <laughs> why does that one? But could it be? Sure. It's possible. We just don't know that, so you shouldn't go out and make that declaration as if you do. Right? What I do want to get you guys over, though, is this notion that somehow it's completely detached from God. It's just all natural, and God's not at work. Or there aren't angels and demons at work. That If you think that, you're sorely mistaken. All right, let me pray. Father, we're thankful for uh, your word. We're thankful that um, you gave a, an example of a godly man in your servant Job, that he, um, in the midst of suffering, he continued to trust that you are good and to bless your name, to worship you. Um, we pray that we would be those who suffer well 
also, and that we would be those who bless your name, and that we would be wise among those who suffer around us, that we would walk wisely with them and point them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.